Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of Season 2 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated gay men in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, an author and writer. Last week, we talked about Pim Fortown, a Dutch far-right politician who pioneered a particular kind of self-consciously tolerant and uh, sort of wannabe liberal far-right politics. Who are we going to talk about this week, Hugh? This week we have a very strange character who is a sort of shadowy, almost cult figure in um, British culture. Um, it's the skinhead, Nicky Crane. Hmm. So, um, let's start with some context, I guess. Nicola Vincenzo Crane was born on the 21st of May 1958 in a semi-detached house in Bexley, which is on the very southeast limits of London. He was raised in the area in a town called Crayford. Bexley is quite a conservative borough. Um, between 1964 and today, it's only returned a Labour council on three occasions, uh, but had a Tory-controlled council almost continuously between 1974 and 2002. It's, uh, it's in the suburbs, but it's not like the leaf, leafy sort of well-off liberal suburbs of North London. It's predominantly white. Even today, eight out of ten inhabitants are white. Um, but there's always been a small and active far-right movement fielding um, both National Front candidates and their splinter party, the National Party, throughout the 1970s. And in fact, in the 2000s, the British National Party were the second party in local elections, at one point losing the East Wickham seats by only eight votes. In the 2015 general election, Bexley Heath and Crayford fielded uh, no less than three far-right candidates. This is just to give some context around the sort of strength of racist political organisation that was happening in the area where Nicola, better known as Nicky, was raised. Nicky was one of ten children. Uh, his father was a structural draftsman. His mother, Dorothy, was of Italian heritage. Um, her maiden name was D'Ambrosio. So adrift in suburbia in the 1970s, Nicky found himself taken in by the local skinhead scene. The skinhead movement was a youth subculture that emerged in Britain in the late 1960s. It was a working class phenomenon, a reaction to the middle class long haired hippies. Keeping their hair cropped or even wet shaved, the skinheads carried themselves as sort of proletarian hard men. A sharp look was vital, emerging out of the hard mod edge of the mod movement. Their dress was one way that working class youth with a little disposable income could gain respect in streets and portray their identity. Um, the so, sort of short hair was supposed to show that they worked in factories where you couldn't really have long hair because it was a risk. And the look was a sort of combination of utilitarian workwear and tailoring. And the uniform quality of the look was what was most important. Um, work boots like Doc Martens, uh, stay-pressed jeans and braces formed the look. In the early 1970s, the look started to die off, but it enjoyed a resurgence at the end of the decade as a sort of second wave revival. And it's important to stress, I think, that the skinhead movement wasn't and isn't intrinsically racist. There's a whole section of the subculture that's always been formed of the far left and is anti-racist. And from the earliest days, skinheads both appreciated and appropriated aspects of the sort of Jamaican rude boy street culture, including listening to ska and rock study music that was produced in Jamaica and brought across with migrants who moved to the UK as part of the Windrush generation to fill shortages in the UK labour market. 
However, the economic and political climate of Britain had changed over the course of the decade. The 1973 oil crisis and the collapse of the Bretton Woods economic management system precipitated by the so-called Nixon shock led to a two-year recession in the UK from 1973 to 75. Inflation soared to 20% with a huge trade deficit, and the Conservative Prime Minister Edward Heath clashed very publicly with organised labour in the shape of the National Union of Mine Workers. Edward Heath we could perhaps feature in a future series. Hmm. Miners' wages had collapsed in real terms as their pay rises were nowhere near the the rising rate of inflation. And so, while the miners started to restrict the supply of coal through strikes towards power stations in order to bargain for a better pay remuneration... Heath implemented something that was called a three-day week. It was a restriction on commercial energy use, meaning that most factories, workplaces and businesses were only supplied power on three uh, specific consecutive days a week. Heath called an election under the slogan, Who who governs Britain, the unions or the government? And he lost. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, not for long, the uh, government would come swinging back, what, three or four years later in the form of Margaret Thatcher? Uh, yeah, four, four years later, yeah. And and actually, that's an important point, that the miners' strike for Thatcher was about crushing the power of organised labour, and specifically the mine workers. Um, but she learnt from Heath's mistakes and stockpiled the coal in advance so she wouldn't have to implement a three-day week, which was obviously massively unpopular and hit the productivity of the country. So yeah, in 75, Heath lost, although Labour under Harold Wilson, who had been the Prime Minister in the 1960s, could only form a minority government. But Labour then won a second election in the autumn with a a very small majority, and the Labour government restored the UK to a position of growth and the recession was over. But inflation remained very high, and Wilson's successor, James Callaghan, had to appeal to the International Monetary Fund for a bailout in 1976. Unemployment continued to rise, reaching 1.5 million in 1978, which was a post-war high of the time. Under Thatcher, it would continue to double that figure to 3 million people. Hmm. So for those who say that Thatcher performed an economic miracle, that's 3 million people on a dole. Anyway, uh, from the late 1960s onwards, in the face of economic pressure and with a new generation of political activists who'd been born after the Second World War, the British fascist movement also saw a resurgence in popularity. Prior to the war, British fascism had been predominantly in the hands of the British Union of Fascists, a political party and street movement whose ideological roots were probably slightly closer to the Italian fascist movement than that to the Nazi party in Germany, although they were essentially part of the same international fascist tendency. They had been led by a complete terrible old gobshite named Oswald Mosley, Mosley was a knight and a baronet from the British aristocracy, again, fucking aristocracy, who would... Um, pre- normal, yeah. normal, normal psychosexual tendencies all over that class of people. Yeah. Uh, and he'd previously been an MP as a conservative and an independent and a Labour, and I think he stood for the new party, which was his own party, before becoming a candidate for British Union fascists. So he was all over the place. Uh, he enjoyed power. Anyway, despite building a street movement of fascists in the 1930s, the Black Shirts, he was interned along with his equally, if not more, awful gobshite wife, Diana Mitford, one of the terrible Mitford sisters who, for some reason, gays love so much. And I'm saying here and now that the 
only Mitford sister who is a permissible gay icon is Decca Mitford, who was the communist. And funny. Potentially Pamela, who Decca later went on to describe as a, a you know what being. <laughs> Not Lebanese Blanche. <laughs> Actually, I think Nancy, the novelist, was a, was a sort of liberal socialist. But if you're going to choose one, choose Decker and not Diana or Unity. Anyway, I digress. What a name. Unity Mitford. Unity Valkyrie Mitford. She oh. had not much hope of not becoming a fascist with that name. Yeah, that's, you know, I love Wagner as much as the next opera queen, but... People named Brunhilde and shit. <laughs> Gotta watch out. Anyway, Britain being um, Britain, I guess, and irredeemably slavish to such made-up titles, Mosley, rather than being strung from a lamppost, as was fit for all his heroes, continued after the war and uh, attempted to restart the fascist movement with a sort of pan-European fascist ideology, starting a, a party called the Union Movement. But the Union Movement faced relentless attacks from anti-fascist groups such as the 43 Group, which was a group of Jewish ex-servicemen who formed street-fighting squads to disrupt uh, Union Movement organising, whose ranks included the veteran anti-fascist uh, Morris Beckman and the young, soon-to-be hairdresser Vidal Sassoon, who started his career as a street-fighting anti-fascist. The Union Movement began to collapse, uh, despite despite a brief upsurge in support for Mosley and Kensington, which followed the British Nationality Act of 1948, and that act gave, um, quote-unquote, Commonwealth citizenship to uh, former subjects in British colonies or former colonies. As a result, and um, as a result of the act, and tempted by the possibility of better work conditions and quality of life in the UK, there was an influx of migrants from the Caribbean, and especially from Jamaica where post-war labour shortages meant that there were jobs to be filled in England. The first major group of migrants arrived on the uh, ship, the Empire Windrush, that was a troop carrier that had docked in Kingston, Jamaica, en route from Australia to England in the aftermath of the Second World War. Successive British governments ran campaigns to encourage migration to fill the gaps in the labour market, but upon arrival in the UK, these new arrivals were faced with substandard housing conditions and an astonishing level of racism and racist violence. This came from all areas of British society. Within days of the arrival of the Windrush, 11 Labour MPs had written to Clement Attlee to complain about migration. And that's just part of the Labour Party's often shameful and racist attitude towards migrant workers that continues in parts of the party to this day. Britain in the 1960s and 70s was characterised by an upsurge in racist violence and racist political organising, which quickly became part of the mainstream political discourse. In 1968, Enoch Powell, the Tory Shadow Home Secretary, gave a speech in the West Midlands, an area that had been the site of uh, a lot of racist political campaigning. In the 1964 election, the Conservative candidate Peter Griffiths, Griffiths, took the constituency of Smethwick, which was against the general trend in that election towards Labour, with an openly racist campaign which included the slogan, quotes, if you want a N-word for your neighbour, vote Labour, end quote. Smethwick had a growing Sikh population at the time. In fact, it was the largest in the world outside of the Punjab. Um, Who actually issued the pamphlets with the slogan is actually still debated. We'll come back to that. But certainly Griffiths didn't distance himself from them, saying of the slogan, quote, 
I should think that is a manifestation of the popular feeling. I would not condemn anyone who said that. I would say that is how people see the situation in Smethwick. I fully understand the feelings of the people who say it. I would say it is exasperation, not fascism. End quote. Oh, what a snot-nosed little motherfucker. This is a sort of typical mealy-mouthed bullshit with which the English uh, like to justify their deeply, deeply racist society. I'm not racist. Well, not just the English, but especially the English. They say, I'm not racist, but I can see why others are. That's kind of part of the British political system. Um, And that's how Powell structured his speech, claiming to be not a racist himself, but echoing the quote-unquote legitimate concerns of others who told him in no uncertain terms how that they feared, quote, in this country in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man, end quote. Powell was speaking out against the 1968 Race Relations Act at that time, a yet-to-be-passed parliamentary act, uh, which would have outlawed discrimination in terms of employment, housing, and public services against people on the basis of their race. Again, playing on the British tendency to fawn over public school rhetoricians, Powell predicted a dire future for the UK by quoting Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, quote, like the Roman, I see the river Tiber foaming with much blood, end quote. Ugh. Malcolm X actually visited Smethwick shortly before his murder as a result of the campaign, which is <laughs> Malcolm X and Smethwick. I don't know. It's a strange combination in my mind. Um, <laughs> it does sort of sound like the beginning of a bad joke. But... Yeah. Also present during the campaign was another privately educated Cambridge reptile, truly one of the most revolting lowlifes of British politics, which is saying something, a man named Colin Jordan, who later claimed to have been the brains behind the slogan, so to speak. Jordan was one of the two main leaders and organisers of the post-mostly fascist movement in the UK from the 60s until the 90s, really, alongside uh, his fellow scumbag John Tyndall. In 1962, on Hitler's birthday, they formed the National Socialist Movement, an openly Nazi political group. Tyndall at that time was engaged to be married to a woman called Francois Dior, the French socialite and niece of Christian Dior. But she left him for Colin Jordan, whom she married in 1963. Boy, can she pick him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she was herself, clearly, obviously, a a fascist, and she channeled a lot of her money into, into fascist causes. What did we say at the end of the Hunan episode? Fashion kids don't get involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stay clear of fashion. Um, the two sort of former comrades split ways over the incident, although they claimed it was for ideological reasons. And actually, the next sort of 30 or 40 years of British fascism was this sort of struggle between the two tendencies of Tyndall and Jordan. So Tyndall left and he took his new organisation, which he called the Greater Britain Movement, into talks with other sort of tiny fash grupuscules to form after a rocky start the National Front which was led by the former editor of the British Union fascist newspaper and the Daily Mail columnist A.K. Chesterton who was the cousin of G.K. Chesterton Chesterton. The aim of the National Front was to capitalise on this new mainstream racist sentiments dropping their openly openly neo-Nazi rhetoric and their obsession with Jews instead adopting a still anti-Semitic but more popular focus on racism around immigration. In 1972, Tyndall became the leader of the group. Jordan, meanwhile, had been imprisoned for distributing racist leaflets. In 1967, he was released and he tried to patch things up with Tyndall and join the National Front, but it was fruitless. So he formed the neo-Nazi British movement, 
I don't really want to go too deeply into this sort of Kremlinology of these different far-right fantasist organizations. They're worse than Trotskyist organizations in terms of their splits. They're always splitting and, uh, you know, fighting and stuff. But I do think it's important to explain the sort of territory of racism that Crane was growing up in. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was also focused on Southeast London, where the National Front were headquartered in Croydon. The Labour Party also had deep racist tendencies, as I explained, and that helped to validate the open racism of Tory discourse. I don't want to discredit all of the Labour Party because obviously there was anti-racist organising and some important legislation that came from it. But the fact is that there is this sort of tendency towards a British jobs for British workers line of argument that still exists within the Labour Party. But this is how it worked. You know, that that, that argument then helped validate the open racism of the Tories and then the, the sort of power-like language and policies within the Tories helped to validate the electoral tactics of the National Front as, as a political party, and that in turn helped to validate the street violence of the British movement. Although the National Front did also engage in street violence, and the British movement did attempt to engage in electoral politics. They weren't just racist and anti-Semitic, of course. Both also advocated reactionary Nazi-style social policies regarding the family and child rearing. They're openly extremely misogynistic. They were against mixed marriages, of course, and they were violently opposed to homosexuality. Uh, The British movement in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, was floundering as their commitment to open neo-Nazism and their Hitler worship was a hindrance at the polls, unsurprisingly. In 1975, uh, Jordan, however, was nicked for shop <laughs> was nicked for shoplifting women's knickers from a Tesco's in Coventry. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm definitely not attempting to kink, kink shame in any way. This I just think there's something so incredibly British about a neo-Nazi politician having his career destroyed with the phrase "women's knickers from a Tesco's in Coventry." Like it's so pedestrian. <laughs> Oh, it's unbelievable. This, it's so depressing and grey, and yeah. you can just imagine these depressing grey In 1975. Jesus Christ. Um, At least find something pretty. Don't, like, steal polyblend granny panties. But no, I just want to make clear that I'm definitely not kink-shaming, and his um, taste for women's knickers was far and away the least objectionable thing about Jordan. I'm going to come out and say that we're allowed to kink-shame fascists, but... Maybe that's just me. Um, no, because the kink is not the problem. You're right, you're right, you're the right. The fascism is the problem. The fascism is the problem, and also, if you're going to get into knickers, A, shoplift them well so you don't get caught, and B, do it in a more interesting way than a Tesco's gray polyblend granny <laughs> panties from a Tesco's in Coventry, Jesus. Yeah. So he um, he resigns. Um I think the idea is that he resigned thinking that he was going to put someone in his place and sort of rule from behind the scenes, but he didn't. it didn't work that way. He was replaced by a milkman from Liverpool called Michael McLaughlin, whose parents were actually um, incredibly admirable people. They were sort of um, uh, Irish nationalists who were involved in uh, the international brigades and they were socialists. And, you know, this is like um, good dad, bad, uh, bad son. I don't know. Anyway, McLaughlin um, really changed the British movement's direction away from this broad-based electoral strategy. Um, 
sort of veering away from Jordan's weird race science that he was sort of pseudoscience he was coming up with and attempting to build a street movement of working class young men, which strategically was a good idea for his organization. The approach soon brought up close to the, uh, brought them up close to the growing white power racist skinhead movement of the time. And the organization began to boom, uh, fed, they sort of fed the appetite of these racist unemployed young white men. Um, that they had for violence, racist violence, provocative street parades, etc., etc. I think um, at its height it had 4,000 members, 25 um, sectors, as it were. And one of these dickheads was a young Nicky Crane. So within a few years, Crane, who was this archetypal skinhead, he wore bomber jackets, singlets emblazoned with white power and a swastika and Doc Martin boots. He'd risen through the organization to become a regional organizer for the Kent area. Being six foot two and well built, he also took a role as part of McLaughlin's personal bodyguard. Throughout the 1970s, East London, which had traditionally been the site of a lot of migration, was home to a huge amount of racist violence against Asian minorities who'd begun to settle around Whitechapel um, to work like the Huguenots and the Jews before them in the local textile industry. On May the 4th, 1978, Altab Ali, a young Bengali man who worked in a textile sweatshop in Hanbury Street, which is just off Brick Lane, was attacked while walking home from work by three young uh, skinheads, and he was murdered. And actually the park near where he was murdered is now called Altab Ali Park. Um, his death stimulated a, a new burst in this tradition of anti-fascist organising by the local Bengali community, including the short-lived Bengali youth movement against racist attacks and the Hackney and Tower Hamlets Defence Committee. However, the Great London Council had stimulated um, sort of provocative headlines as they dithered one way or the other on whether to encourage racially mixed housing estates in the borough or race, racially segregated housing estates in the borough. The idea being that segregation would help to protect Asian residents from racist neighbours. Um, a month later, 150 fascist skinheads rampaged in a pogrom down Brick Lane, smashing windows, attacking people, throwing concrete and bottles and destroying car cars. And amongst that number was, you guessed it, Nicky Crane. Crane wasn't charged for his participation in the pogrom, but shortly after he was sentenced to 12 months at the Old Bailey for another attack that he perpetrated on a black family who were waiting for a bus at nearby Bishopsgate later in the year, where he attacked them with a bottle. The judge sentencing him declared him, quote, worse than an animal, end quote. Upon release, he was back in Kent, organising the British movement into yet more racist violence. In March 1980, he organised an attack on a, of a squad of 100 Nazi skinheads in Woolwich against a queue of mainly black customers queuing outside the Odeon cinema. Armed with pickaxes and knives, Crane marched the fascists down Woolwich High Street in military formation before setting on the black cinema goers. Most of them had hidden inside, so they smashed the windows and the doors of the cinema in what prosecutors would call at the trial, quote, a serious, organised and premeditated riot, end quote. Hmm. He was given a suspended sentence for the attack, but in 1981 he was sentenced to four years for another attack later in 1980 against a group of black kids outside of Woolwich Arsenal train station. This was Nicky's life. Drinking, violence, jail, rinse, repeat. Hmm. As he was sentenced, he flung his arm up into a Nazi salute and shouted, Sieg Heil, 
Upon release, he was right back on it, leading another 100 skinheads in an attack on a free concert given by the Greater London Council to protest youth unemployment. For people who aren't really aware, the Greater London Council at the time was controlled by the sort of left of the Labour Party, and um, it was what was called at the time the loony left. That's a sort of tabloid phrase for it, because they were doing stuff like giving money to crazy uh, crazy sort of ideas like um, LGBT social centres and um, migrant organising centres and the like, you know. And so a lot, of the, left. a lot of the stuff in England about political correctness gone mad comes from that period, this sort of ideas that like, you know, oh, you're not allowed to say this anymore, like, or they've banned kids from singing Bar Bar Black Sheep, or et cetera, et cetera. These, this was sort of a, a right-wing trope from the Sun at the time attempting to crush the left power of the GLC. Um, and inadvertently has led to, you know, this, uh, the, the same sort of traits coming out in, in, in British media for years and years and years, and it's all complete nonsense. Anyway, I digress. So the G- GLC had um, held this free concert to protest youth unemployment because they were putting a lot of their energy into anti-Thatcher campaigns. This time, though, Nicky Crane and his thugs faced a security detail of striking miners who had been hired by the GLC um, as a sort of act of material solidarity because they were on strike in a minor strike throughout 1984, so they were being paid to do security for the for the gig. Mm-hmm. Who, um, I don't know, I would not try to get into a fight with a bunch of striking miners in 1984, I don't like you. So... Alongside um, militants from these sort of leftist, leftist squads of anti-fascists, such as Anti-Fascist Action, which was probably the most effective group to disrupt and smash the incipient neo-Nazi street gangs at the time, uh, through collecting intelligence and through physical force, anti-fascism and, and uh, street fighting. The security detail managed to fight, fight the skinheads off, but actually a lot of people were hurt in the attack. And Crane came back for seconds and a member of Red Action, which was a political group that helped to form anti-fascist action, AFA, was he was knocked over and he had to make a quick exit. But music was a key battleground between fascists and the left in the 1980s. Noticing the rising fascist threat coming up in youth culture in the 70s, socialists uh, organised Rock Against Racism, which was an attempt to build a sort of anti-fascist movement within pop culture at the time. And I won't go into the sort of myriad internal problems around Rock Against Racism or the Anti-Nazi League and its links with the Socialist Workers' Party. There's plenty online if you want to read about this. And um, a lot of that criticism is both valid and um, necessary and I would subscribe to. But it did, on the cultural front, it did, uh, to an extent, uh, make a make a difference, was, was reasonably effective with a series of popular nationwide tours that drew huge crowds into explicitly anti-fascist concerts, made anti-fascism... Um, part of youth culture to a certain extent and forced many bands to explicitly denounce racism and um, white supremacy within their own fan bases. Hmm. Nowhere was that tension more explicit than in, than within the uh, punk and oi subcultures, where music subcultures, which were sort of split between leftist aligned bands and f- fascist bands. Hmm. In 1981, the British music magazine Sounds released um, an OI compilation put together by uh, erstwhile socialist music journalist Gary Bushell. 
Gary Bushell, <coughs> where do you start? Anyway, on the cover of this compilation of Oi Music, Bushell used a photograph of our very own Nicky Crane. Uh, his face sort of scrunched into a snarl, his fist clenched, the other hand pointing at the camera, and the sole of his boot filling the rest of the frame. Jesus. Yeah, and it was controversial even at the time. Um, Bushell has since claimed that he wasn't aware that Crane was a Nazi until he got the proofs through and suddenly saw that he was covered in Nazi tattoos. And he wrote... Is it that hard to spot Nazi tattoos? And he wrote later, quote... Bear bear with me on this one. I don't really like quoting Gary Bushell, but... Quote, I had a Christmas card on the wall. It had that image that was on the cover of this album, uh, but washed out. I honestly, hand on heart, thought that it was a still from The Wanderers. It was only when the album came out, came through for me to approve the artwork that I saw as tattoos. Of course, if I hadn't been impatient, I would have said, right, fucking scrap this. Let's shoot something else entirely. Instead, we airbrushed the tattoos out. There were two mistakes there, both mine. Hands up. End quote. So that's Bushel's defense for why he put a neo-Nazi militia leader on the front of his album. But it doesn't explain why he named the album, and I quote, Strength through oi. Anyway, um, Bushell has since renounced all his socialist tendencies and is a political candidate for an English nationalist party. So make of that what what you will. I know what I make about Gary Bushell. Um, Crane moved closer to the sort of burgeoning, highly profitable fascist neo-Nazi music scene around the time. And uh, he became the head of security for the band Screwdriver, Screwdriver with a K, which was a Nazi punk band who are legendary amongst white nationalists. Screwdriver were idols on a scene that came out of the Rock Against Communism concerts that were a series of concerts linked to the National Front that were obviously sort of self-consciously mimicking uh, Rock Against Racism. White power bands became the centre around which skinhead politics coalesced, especially as uh, organized physical force anti-fascism like that coming from AFA made street protests and marches increasingly dangerous. Their summer concerts were held in the grounds of a house owned by the Conservative Party councillor Edgar Griffin, whose son, Nick, would go on to be the leader of the British National Party. Hmm. Tories. Gotta Tory dads. Love them? No, you don't. Yeah. You really don't gotta love them, do you? So the screwdriver frontman, who was called Ian Stuart Donaldson, um, discovered during one of the many splits in the National Front that those who'd been organising the concerts had also been defrauding the bands. I think here it's worth also pointing out, in fact, that as well as being a vehicle for white nationalism, the white power music scene really is a triumph for the wallet inspector. It just sucks money out of the sort of limited incomes of these working class young racists. Mm -hmm. Not that... I care that much, but like it's a scam, right? It's like a, more of a scam than a political movement. It just offers this uh, identity, but yeah. Anyway, so furious about this, uh, Donaldson and Crane decided to set up their own distribution slash promotion network, including uh, a magazine, merchandise, all that sort of shit, that was called Blood and Honor, named after the slogan of the Hitler Youth. And this still exists to this day and basically helped move the British far-right and white nationalist movements back into the orbit of sort of Hitler worship, Nazi esotericism uh, and neo-Nazism, and probably actually helped to hobble the sort of UK 
fascist political parties electorally for uh, for a generation up until um, past the B- or the BNP, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway, later, Blood and Honor became tied up with the BNP, and then they helped organize this sort of paramilitary unit for guarding concerts that was called Combat 18, which has become basically an extremely violent fascist terror organization, essentially. Um, horrible. Anyway, um, Nicky Crane and uh, Donaldson became very firm friends for the rest of the decade, and they were sort of evading or trying to evade attacks from anti-fascists the whole time as they were forced to move their gigs out of London and they ran these elaborate schemes using redirection points where you were sent somewhere and then was told where else to go to try and beat the anti-fascists and frequently didn't work. The anti-fascists gave them some beatings at times, including the Battle of Waterloo. Um, in 1990, Nicky Crane was spotted lurking around the edges of a protest against British involvement in Northern Ireland. Uh, He was confronted and attacked by three members of anti-fascist action who managed to beat him and throw him under a bus, um, for which they were sentenced to three to four years. Uh, Interestingly, Nicky Crane testified at their trial, which suggests at this point he was sort of one to cut ties with the far right because it really wasn't a done thing to be seen to be collaborating with the police. And, and from this point on, he really started to drift away from the, the far right. And this was 1990. Yeah. So the story so far has been a relatively pedestrian tale of a young white London lad who um, is driven by a passion for extreme violence, for racial hatred, for this sort of group identity of the white skinheads. And he climbs pretty easily through the ranks of a very small fascist party and goes on to be something of a, a big fish in a little pond. The emphasis there being on him being pond life. Hmm. But, but by 1992, in 1992, Nicky Crane appeared on a Channel 4 documentary. And this is where things get strange because he announced that he was and always had been a gay man. Well... I guess I'm not that surprised because we are, after all, featuring him on this show. But also, the fuck? Right. The Sun newspaper ran a story about him uh, following it, which featured a photo of Crane in his white power vest and um, and uh, drainpipe jeans and boots with the headline, Nazi Nick is a pansy. Pansy spelled P-A-N-Z-I. It's a joke. Get it? Ha, ha, ha. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that the story isn't like subsequent stories where these closeted Nazis come out and sort of um, renounce their political leanings uh, and fill their gay life, although that is what he did. But actually, he had been living a pretty full double gay life for half a decade prior. Indeed, in 1985, shortly after he was released from prison, the anti-fascist magazine slash organization Searchlight revealed that Crane had been working as a doorman at Heaven, which is London's, I think, largest gay nightclub, or was at the time. Um, They ended the report, quote, on Thursday nights, he can be found at the Heaven Disco in Charing Cross, end quote. Um, And the interesting thing about this is that Searchlight was actually read quite a lot by fascists at the time because they... They got like sort of scene gossip from from it, um, so the rumors sort of began to spread around the far right. 
But I guess for a bunch of reasons, it didn't really impact him because I guess um, people maybe thought that the, the fascists probably thought that Searchlight would like run these false rumors about them. Partly because he was six foot two and built like a brick shit house. Partly because his political position, his relationship with Ian Stuart Donaldson and within the parties that he was in meant it simply wasn't worth challenging him. But in the documentary, he stated, uh, I'm going to read a long quote, but he said, quote, I used to be the Kent organiser of the British movement, so I was very active in Kent, and I used to recruit people in Kent. In quite a short period of time, I was able, able to propel myself from an ordinary member into a position of influence and power, basically. Adolf Hitler is my god, my Fuhrer, my leader. Everything I'd done was for Adolf Hitler. A lot of people I used to hang around with, they did sort of hate queers. They'd go out queer bashing. It was something like, I never did myself, and I'd never let it happen in front of me either. There was a stage in the British movement where I was actually particularly violent and building up like quite a violent reputation. I did actually know I was gay. I didn't do anything about it. I first had sex with a man when I was 26. He was a boyfriend. It was actually then that I started to feel like a hypocrite because the right wing is so anti-gay, and so I just could not stay in it. I do feel a bit ashamed, like my politics from the past, because like how much I've changed now. I believe in individualism, end quote. Um, this gay guy called um, Burn, because I've lost his first name, a gay guy called Burn who had um, chatted Nicky Crane up at Heaven said of him, quote, he stood out quite a lot. A lot of people used to be quite keen on him because he was very much, uh, he was a very butch looking geezer, end quote. Hmm. But his presence on the gay scene wasn't universally welcome. After all, he bore tattoos that said things like white power and I hate the n-word and uh, um, the gay scene at the time had uh, quite strong leftist leanings or liberal leanings and leftist leanings even if it did also of course mirror a lot of society's racial prejudices with a few more of its own racial bigotries thrown in for good measure but what made it complicated is that there was a subculture of white gay skinheads who weren't actively political or were even potentially left-wing um who still bore those sort of tattoos as part of their authentic look. Murray Healy wrote that, quote, gay Nazis were assumed to be left-wing even if they had Nazi tattoos. People refused to read these tattoos politically. People thought it was part of the authenticity ritual. Jesus. People thought he was just playing a part, end quote. Oh, God. And that isn't just a gay thing, like straight skinheads who weren't ostensibly Nazis, quote-unquote, um, wore screwdriver t-shirts, for example. And to re reiterate, I am like absolutely not condoning that behavior or saying that there's like a significant difference between being a Nazi and simply dressing and acting like a Nazi. You know, it's like, you know, yeah, I'm just explaining that that aspect of culture that now definitely wouldn't wash, but it might go some way to explaining how he could live this so-called double life at the time. Um, but at the same time, he was getting more notice within the far right for this gay life. Um, Eddie Stampton, who was a, is, I think, a skinhead and fascist, wrote, quote, <clears throat> It was early 1986 and a few of us had started going to trendy West End nightclubs. One such place was Thursday nights at Maximus in Leicester Square. Craney was on the door there and he would let Craney being, um, being Nicky Crane. Craney was on the door there and he would let a load of us in free. Usually I'd be with Chubby, Chris, Rob Cathrew from Pimlico, Birmingham Mark Walsh, Chris W, Andy K, and on the odd occasion, John Burnley. It wasn't a queer gaff by any stretch, but it was full of colourful characters, freaks and top quality birds. 
Like most West End clubs of the time, there would always be a couple of queers around. We used to go there on our way to the goth night at the Hippodrome. It was unbelievably easy to pull in there. This particular night, there was just me and a mate. When we got there, Crony wasn't on a door, but because we were down there quite regularly, the other doorman recognised us and waved us straight through without paying. As I walked down the stairs into the club, I could see Craney at the bottom in his dinner suit with his back to me. He had his arms around what I thought was a bird and was in a clinch kissing her. As I got to the bottom, I slapped him on the back and said something like, All right, Nick, mate. He turned in my direction to reveal it was actually a very effeminate bloke he'd been kissing. I was in (laughs) shock and I must say, this was a bit of a turning point for me. And since that night, I've had to take the so-called nationalist movement in this country with a large pinch of salt. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, my dickhead. Um... And he was questioned about this by uh, by Donaldson. He told Donaldson that he'd simply worked at heaven because it was good money. Something that Donaldson, who, let's face it, was never really a candidate for Brain of Britain, uh, believed, <laughs> saying that he took him at his words because, quote-unquote, he was a nationalist. I mean, like, the sort of cognitive bias of these people, like... Fucking hell. Idiots. Galaxy brain. Yeah. Absolute um, galaxy brain. Yeah. He can't be a hypocrite because he has a belief. Like, what? Like, Anyway. Uh, it does seem that perhaps Crane was trying to merge these two aspects of his life with a small faction of openly gay Nazis. In 1987, Searchlight reported, quote, Crane, the right's finest example of the clinical psychopath, is also engaged in building a gay skins movement, which meets on Friday nights. Uh, end quote. That's their language on... You know, not mine, but that's what he said. Um, He also appeared, in fact, as the security for Gay Pride in 1986, which did actually cause a stir amongst gay activists who recognised him. But we don't actually know that much more about this aspect of his life within the gay scene because uh, it wasn't political. He wasn't politically involved in the gay scene and it seemed largely confined to partying. However, in the late 80s and early 90s, he did feature a number of gay skinhead porn films, which was a a growing fetish within gay culture at the time. And there's also a rumour that in the early 80s, I think 84, just after he'd been released from prison, he featured in a psychic TV video. Um, It does look like him in this video, but it's actually never been confirmed. But the writer, John Eden, suggests that it probably is him and says, quote, uh, he finds it, quote, uh, peculiar that this was allowed to slip through the net, especially in the light of all the dirt that was thrown at Throbbing Gristle for their supposed and non-existent fascism. It's all very odd indeed, end quote. So that seems like a good line on which to end it. Like, it was all very odd indeed. Crane supposedly lived the rest of his life in Soho, in a bedsit in which he appears on the Channel 4 documentary of 1992, bizarrely next to a real-life full-size coffin that was propped against his bedsit wall. Um, He worked as a cycle courier and uh, a former skinhead friend who kept in touch with him called uh, Gavin Watson recalls, quote, I saw him riding around Soho in day-glow lycra shorts. I thought, good for you, end quote. His former fascist comrades immediately denounced him, um, but the outing totally shook the far-right music scene with one of their leaders and sort of poster boys of masculinity suddenly gone from the movement um, and self-identifying in their eyes as a degenerate, which was everything they stood against. And the weekend after it was aired on TV, 
um, the British movement actually sent out a hit squad to try and kill him, but they never found him. Hmm. Anyway, Crane died in 1993 from complications of AIDS. His death certificate stated that at the end he was accompanied in the hospital by his boyfriend, known only as Craig. Um, there's a quote that he gave in the documentary that I think is really pertinent because lead, uh, readers or uh, listeners to our last series will remember that Ronnie Cray very closely identified with Gordon of Khartoum by saying that you know that he was a homosexual and no one thought less of him for it as a for for uh, thought less about him as a man because he was uh, a real man. No one would call him a puff, and um. In this quote from uh, from Nicky Crane, he says, quote, Ronnie Cray was so inspirational to me. He's gay, but no one called him a faggot. He's probably the hardest gangster ever, and that helped me cope in the most difficult of times, end quote. And that is the short and horrible life of Nicky Crane. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So... To support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. Short and horrible indeed. Um, I think one first interesting question to ask is about this question of kind of the way in which Crane was able to pass in certain kinds of gay scenes and spaces and locations. Uh, And I think it is really important, first of all, to establish two things. One, that um, not all people who identify with uh, skinhead culture are fascists, as you uh, sort of ably laid out earlier, and also that especially eroticized representations of violence and of different kinds of power relations are not to be interpreted as literal endorsements of those relations, if that makes sense. So there's those two things I want to lay out before I ask this question. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, but can I add a complicating factor there, which is it's the matter is um, although the representations of certain power relations in a fetishized or eroticized manner aren't necessarily endorsements of those positions or don't necessarily hold the politics of those positions, they do raise really important questions about like intersectional questions about who gets to eroticize and what that eroticization says uh, in a wider cultural form, i.e., to put that in a plain English. Um, it's definitely true to say that like people can f- fantasize and eroticize skinheads and even skinhead violence without endorsing racist violence. But what does that mean 
I can see how, uh, what does that, that, that has a completely different uh, implication for a white person uh, fetishizing Nikki Crane as hot or watching those porn videos as it does, uh, for example, uh, a Bengali gay man who, who's, 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 relationship with that sort of violence is not limited to the eroticization of the potential of the violence because every time he walked down brick lane he was in danger of being literally murdered as a result of that violence so therefore like they have different weights that have to be interpreted and like you can't uh, and i'm not saying you're doing this but like it's not as easy as enough to say like i'm not a nazi i i do not in my everyday life endorse nazism but i am turned on by going to clubs full of entirely white men who are dressed as Nazis. But are people who are dressed as skinheads necessarily dressed as Nazis? No, 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 not necessarily. But when it comes, and, and, and as we said earlier, like, of course, there's a, a, a very honorable tradition of anti-fascist, anti-racist skinheads, like Redskins and Sharp, for example. But, um, but Nikki Crane was a Nazi. And the porn videos that he was featured in, he was featured in for his look, and his look was entirely, totally tied into his identity, and his identity was racist violence. So the look of Nikki Crane was visually identifiable as right skinhead and not just a skinhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had he was covered in Nazi tattoos. Yeah, the Nazi tattoos would do it, wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, and also, personally, I mean, I'm sure people. I'm not engaged in skinhead culture. But but my my feeling around that would be, and um, and I don't want to tread on any toes of any like anti racist skinheads, but that like making the anti racist part of that identity and that sexual identity intrinsic and clear and as 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 an intrinsic component as the racism was to Nikki Crane's identity would seem to be a vital way of having that identity because it's it's a complicated thing and in a dark room or in a dark street the look is confusable, if that is a word. Yes, although I do think that it's important not to uh, overstate a direct relationship between aestheticized or eroticized looks and actual violence. And I think, for me, not overemphasizing or having an overly literal, necessarily, view um, of the relationship between um, extreme power differentials in erotic representation and in real life is part of taking them in real life dead serious. Um, it's I, not I discounting that. It's not discounting the uh, vital importance of anti-racist and anti-fascist organizing um, and sort of living in the everyday to also say that. You know, the erotic sphere is a foreign country and things are different there. Um, yeah, and also I think it's important to point out that in the post-war European gay scene, um, the relationship of uh, if even white gay men to fascists is... is um, a history of being their victims. Yes, so, so it, it becomes doubly complicated. It's a history of being their victims, and so then you are act, part of what you're doing is eroticizing the is eroticizing the thing that is threatening you. And I do think that it becomes 
too easy um, now in a moment where the new far right is to different extents and with varying levels of meaning it, but, you know, just think of the last episode, um, embracing or pretending to embrace certain kinds of upper-class gay men and lesbian women. Um, In that context, it's too easy, I think, to say, well, you know, in the 80s, uh, these sort of representations of far-right violence, it was just white men allying themselves with other white men who were being violent. Uh, No, it was white men eroticizing images of other white men, but other white men who wanted to beat and kill them and who were threatening to beat and kill them. Yeah. Um, and that's, that just sort of adds to, adds to it. And I think is part of, part of not taking it too literally. It is interesting Like there was a, there was a controversy I remember, um, about a year ago or a year and a half ago in Berlin where a party was sharing on their Tumblr images, not of Nikki Crane, but images of, um, other right skinheads, um, and it became this kind of, um, question of whether this party, the organizers of which are certainly not, uh, far rightists or far right sympathizers. Um, but they are kind of, from what I can tell, like dumb PR people who like controversy and like sort of edginess, um, about what the kind of what an appropriate response to that would be and what like what people should do about the presence of images like that in the kind of visual economy of um contemporary gay life were any of the far right or fascist movements at the time um using aids which is the disease that that Nikki Crane died of as a kind of either organizing tool or rhetorical tool to denounce homosexuality. Yeah, as a rhetorical tool, absolutely. Um, the the I mean, it mirrors very much in the US the sort of religious um, uh, condemnation of AIDS as a sort of uh, just plague, I guess, uh, a, a, a judgment of God. And, but in this... In this context, it fed into ideas of racial hygiene, um, and it was very much celebrated as yeah as a um, just desserts for uh, what they saw as um, degeneracy. Yeah. Hmm. And then what? Is the sort of pattern? I mean, you alluded to some of it, talking a bit about Nick Griffin. Um, but what is the kind of uh, pattern? What happens to these various movements and organizations after Crane's death into the nineties and uh, early two thousands? By the end of the nine, the British movement collapsed. I think late eighties, early nineties. I'll have to. I'd have to check. The National Front continued to this day. The British movement, I think, became the British National Socialist movement, and then they mainly exist now as like a a web presence, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the National Front continued and do continue to this day. And um, really, I can't praise enough the strategic um, uh, brilliance of the anti-fascist action and the sort of street-level physical force anti-fascist at the time. The reason that the National Front and um, the British movement were beaten off the streets was because they were beaten off the streets 
by mm-hmm. people who risked a lot and did jail time bec- to force this movement to not be able to gather. Like, that's it. Like, you can't gather on the streets. You can't have a fascist street movement. Mm-hmm. And they really drove them off. And a lot of people put a lot on the line and suffered a lot from it. And they did far more than, than <laughs> with all due respect, Rock Against Racism, although it is important to build a wider movement, of course. For, you know, like, and far more than sort of, um, you know, let's hear both sides or everyone has a right to speak. No, like, you, you beat them by beating them off the streets physically. And that, that worked. And they didn't emerge again until the early 2000s when the um, National Front and then the BMP um, really managed to capitalise in the Northwest in, uh, let's see, 2001 from memory, where there was the Oldham riots. And those were catalyzed by, um, again, street provocations in the Northwest. And from that point, then um, the BMP especially rose to quite impressive uh, prominence for a combination of um, what I'd call like dog shit politics, which is, you know, like <laughs> get, getting councillors who clean up dog, get make sure dog shit's cleaned up. And on a local level, your bins are being collected on time and therefore you're getting your councillors re-elected. But on and then because you have this like force, you then appear on TV and on a national level, you start talking about bloody immigrants you know, mm-hmm. that was the, their sort of strategy and it worked extremely well. Um, and they, 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 they were as a big threat for a time and they, um, uh, Nick Griffin became an MEP, for example, and the BMP, like, yeah, we're like really rising. And that was also encouraged and facilitated by truly strategically stupid and probably uh, inherently racist strategy of the Labour Party at the time towards triangulation, which was oh, well, these people are annoyed because there are legitimate concerns, so we we have to move further right to beat the BMP by taking their territory, by acknowledging these legitimate concerns. But then the more you acknowledge the quote-unquote legitimate concerns, the more it appears in the newspaper as a real problem that's represented. And so then it becomes, you know, like you're just feeding the fire, which is what the uh, what New Labour did for years. Um and was a tendency that con- completely continued until um, 2015. Um, although even still within the Labour left, there are still these sort of tendencies around, you know, more immigration officers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really helped the BMP, again, flourish. And um, if you want to read more about that, um, there's a great book by Daniel Trilling called Bloody Nasty People, where he does a lot of first-person research and meeting these the BMP around that time and sort of explains this electoral strategy and how, how it was so successful, how they managed to, yeah, um, win that media war. And they're still there, of course. Like, the BMP is pretty much collapsed and is now reverting to neo-Nazism and um, those old tendencies. But the, the far right finds now expression within, um, well, the English Defence League and those sort of... Um, the, the rebirth of uh, football hooliganism or uh, that's that sort of vibe these like um, these firms which is something we didn't talk about in the show what we could have and then the far right is also manifesting again in its electoral electoral strategy with the Brexit party well if people want to find out more about Nikki Crane uh, where could they turn and what are some of the sources that you use to research this episode yeah, um, 
there's a lot of good blogs uh, about him about him from people on the anti-fascist left. Um, past tense blog. I took a, a, a I read a few of those about Nikki Crane. Um, I, re- I talked just before about John Eden, who has a blog called Uncarved.org, which goes into a lot about um, uh, fascism, white supremacy, and neo-Nazism in UK music scenes and culture scenes. Um, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, there is a profile on Nikki Crane on BBC News magazine by John Kelly, which um, has a lot of interviews with his friends. And then on a wider sort of basis, but also going specifically into Nikki Crane, there is a book called The White Nationalist Skinhead Movement, UK and USA, 1979 to 1993 by Robert Forbes and Eddie Stampton, who I referenced before. So maybe he's no longer a fascist, in which case I apologise. And there's also a fictional novel that's kind of based around Nikki Crane that I haven't read, but uh, that John Eden talks about on his Uncarved blog which is by Max Schaefer called Children of the Sun, which people have been recommending to me for years and I still haven't got around to reading, but um, apparently is an interesting read. So Hugh, um, this seems kind of perverse even to ask because I think the answer is obvious, but Nikki Crane, bad gay, not bad gay? Yeah, bad gay. Bad gay, definitional bad gay. Yeah, Yeah, awful person. Bad, 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 bad. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 bad,